the triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone, need, if anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Without wishing to bring politics into the pulpit unnecessarily, I wonder what you make of Donald Trump. Of course, he's been getting a great deal of coverage these days, and the media enjoy what we call reciting his hair-raising comments. In fact, others not only write about his politics, they're particularly interested in his style. Uh, There is quite a lot of uh, commentary about the mode of leadership which he embodies. In fact, some of you may receive uh, the Evangelical Alliance uh, report, which is called Friday Night Theology. It's a little column which they produce. And they wondered whether there is a cultural shift taking place in the political landscape. Uh, This is what they wrote. 2,000 years ago in the ancient Roman Republic, candidates seeking high political office wore whitened togas to signify purity of intention. Today, the quality of humility is no longer part of the discussion. I wonder if you remember another media event that took place last year, it was in September, when the Pope visited the White House. And he arrived in this very tiny Fiat 500. Uh, This is what the mail said. What would Jesus have driven? Dwarfed by massive Secret Service SUVs, the Pope was a big man in a little car a very modest Fiat 500, over against the giant $1 million million armoured vehicle, a gigantic bomb-proof Cadillac called the Beast, which President Obama uses. And uh, interestingly, Fiat was quite quick to exploit uh, the Pope's humility, and you can see it on the screen. His Holiness knows how to make an entrance. And as I saw that, I thought that actually is quite a good title for this Bible passage. Except that Jesus' entrance, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, carried huge 
significance with regard to both his identity and his mission. It was a remarkable acted parable, as we're going to see. Um, Just to uh, give a little bit of the background, of course, uh, Passover was a great festival which attracted thousands of people, uh, many, many excited visitors. Uh, There was a festive atmosphere, as Matthew writes, and uh, every Jewish adult from within a 20-mile radius would have had to have been there at the festival. In fact, people came also way beyond that radius. The city was packed. One writer suggested there could have been two and a half million people in Jerusalem at that time. Um, other writers, slightly more modest in their uh, 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 the, the figures that they provide. But certainly, the city would have grown by at least fivefold at that festival time. All four Gospels tell us about Jesus' dramatic arrival in the city. Um, As you know, the Gospels talk a great deal about Jesus' movements, always walking. This is the one occasion when he is not. It is the uh, donkey. The previous uh, chapter had signaled that they'd been in Jericho, and Jesus had walked up uh, that journey. Uh, Jericho is about 900 feet below sea level, and he had walked all the way up towards Jerusalem, which is 2,500 feet above sea level. Um, some of you may have made that journey. It's, it's a remarkable thing as you rise up to the Mount of Olives and then on that ridge you look across the Kidron Valley to Jerusalem itself and the temple, now of course also a mosque. It's a, a most remarkable, breathtaking view as you reach that, uh, that Mount of Olives and look across to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus had visited Jerusalem on many other occasions But on this final occasion, he definitely means to be noticed. He is going to make an entrance. And that introduces the three themes we're going to look at briefly. First of all, who he is. You'll see the question uh, in verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Uh, Do you remember that uh, earlier in Matthew, the disciples had already begun to understand a little more about Jesus' identity following his question, who do you say that I am, in chapter 16? And Matthew records Simon Peter's response, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's really interesting that just a few verses after that, in Matthew 16, verse 21, Jesus then says, from that time on, Jesus uh, began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and die, and be raised to life. So here in chapter 21, he's finally arrived significantly during the time of the Passover festival, which was, of course, a clear foreshadowing of his own death. And the Jews and many of the crowd already had some inkling of who this Jesus was. They'd witnessed his words, his works. They'd heard about the raising of Lazarus. And so there was something mysterious about this Jesus. That's why the question comes up in verse 10. Who is this? Some of them answered in the next verse. If you look, you'll see verse 11. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And that, of course, was absolutely true. But Jesus saw himself not just as one more prophet or one religious teacher in a long succession over the centuries, He saw himself as the fulfillment of prophecy. And Matthew makes that point in these verses which we're going to look at. That's why the question of his identity is so significant. Who is he? 
And as you read the passage, there are all kinds of hints about Jesus' identity. You can look at the expressions of the excited crowd, the things that they shouted out. Uh, Verse 9, which we've been singing, Hosanna to the son of David. That was a title understood by the Jews to refer to the messianic king. It was used in Jericho, previous chapter, by the two blind men. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Hosanna is another phrase that means save, save now. It also became an expression of praise. It's one of the phrases that appears in a cluster of psalms that the pilgrims would sing as they went up to Jerusalem, Psalms 113 to 18, the Hallel. They were songs of deliverance, songs of rescue. So the people were full of this kind of expectation. We expect deliverance. We expect hope. This Jesus must be the deliverer. If you add to, the fact, add to that the fact that they also had palms strewn, uh, usually that was an act for royal people, and the fact that this took place on the Mount of Olives, there was a messianic expectation. The Messiah would come on the Mount of Olives and deliver vengeance. You put all of this together and it adds up to an expectation that this Jesus truly is the king. He is the one who would finally deliver the people, particularly, of course, deliver them from the oppression of the Roman occupier. He would bring a military campaign that would truly liberate them. That was their expectation. Well, the key reference in Matthew's account, of course, which helps us understand Jesus' identity, is found in the earlier verses. Now, the story is very well known. You see in verse 2, Jesus sent his uh, two disciples on this unusual errand. Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt behind her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. It's been well said, of course, that many Many of us Christians have been very thankful that Jesus does choose to use donkeys, of whom I am chief, to quote Paul. We don't know, of course, if it had all been planned or if it had been prearranged. What comes across in this account, I think, is that Matthew is signaling that this king is in control of the entire story. Uh, As we've quoted from uh, Matthew 16, Jesus knew that he must go to Jerusalem. And everything that was to follow was not some random succession of events. It was part of God's purpose and plan. Um, In fact, at the end, one week or so later, when the early believers, after Jesus' crucifixion, met together, they were under pressure, and they prayed to the sovereign Lord, and they reminded themselves that everything that had happened, even the actions of God's enemies, had been planned. They did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. So even in this little incident in the opening verses of Matthew 21, Matthew is signaling there are no mistakes here. Events in this story are not running out of control. This is mapped by God's plan and purpose. Um, I only highlight this because uh, Christian believers around the world, especially Christian believers under pressure, take huge comfort from this truth, which is true today as it was in Matthew 21, that the king is in control. I take huge comfort from that as I read the papers or indeed in our own lives we experience those things which might look different to us. Well, that then leads that uh, uh, little uh, acted symbol of the choice of a donkey and a colt not only says something about Jesus' identity, 
but also his mission. That leads us to the next big question, and that is why he came. And verses 4 and 5 uh, help us. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, that's a word for Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, this is the point. As we've seen, the crowd, this excited crowd, longed for a deliverer. Uh, For hundreds of years, the Jewish people had sustained this expectation of a coming king. But as the next few days would show, their messianic hopes were not really based on this Zechariah prophecy, which Matthew quotes. Uh, as, As we discover, they were driven by quite a strong nationalism. They hoped for a mighty king who would sweep away the oppressor, as I've mentioned. Listen to what Zechariah prophesied exactly in Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So both the symbol of the donkey and these prophetic words of Zechariah signal that this truly was the entrance of the king. But this king had a very different mission from some military campaign. It's often pointed out, of course, that he didn't come on this white charger of the military general. He didn't come in a million-dollar, eight-ton presidential beast. He came meek and humble on a donkey. I don't think we should miss the symbolism because it says something about God's strategy, God's mission strategy, and also about Jesus' own leadership style. In fact, it's significant, just a few verses on, beyond the section which we read in verse 15, we've been singing about it actually in our first hymn. Uh, Do you remember in verse 15, the religious leaders were indignant that it was the children who were declaring praise to Jesus. And so Jesus quotes from Psalm 8 as a uh, psalm of David, where David says, the praise of children will silence God's enemies. It's a lovely psalm about who we are. It's a psalm about our identity, but it picks up that theme. And it's the paradox. Children, infants, will silence God's enemies. Here is the paradox again. As Paul said to the Corinthians, God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world so that no one will boast before him. So Jesus' mission was and is expressed through weakness. It is in weakness that God's power is going to be displayed. And that is actually a principle for the whole of the Christian life. Um, I especially love 2 Corinthians, which is the message of this paradox that we see here, Jesus riding on a donkey, Jesus proclaimed by infants and children. 2 Corinthians is all about experiencing the model of Jesus, knowing God's power in weakness. Uh, I first uh, was taught 2 Corinthians by my father, uh, I think I was seven or eight, when he said to me that Christians are like tea bags. Their real strength is drawn only when they get into hot water. That is what the theology of 2 Corinthians, that's the heart of the gospel. God's power seen 
in weakness. God's strength being drawn upon in these vulnerable moments. Paul realized that through all the ups and downs of his life, God's power would be seen in that weakness. Well, this triumphal route that Jesus embarked on led not to some show of force or military power. As we know, it led to suffering and to humiliation. He came, exactly as the prophets predicted, to be the saviour, the saviour for all men and women, as Zechariah was hinting, not just the Jewish people under Roman occupation, but for all nations. Zechariah predicted this kingdom would be a peaceful rule. It would be characterised by righteousness, by gentleness. The king would bring salvation and peace. This universal rule, which now we rejoice in all around the globe, as God's people in Jesus himself. So this is why he came. In fact, Matthew records in the previous chapter, Jesus clearly knew why he was going to Jerusalem. And that's explained in verse 17 to the disciples. As he was going to Jerusalem, he said to the disciples, the Son of Man will be betrayed. They'll be condemned to death. He'll be mocked, flogged, crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. And then in a little section about leadership, which Donald Trump, I think, and all of us ought to read, he then goes on to say in chapter 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So this king, riding on the donkey, had come to seek and to save, to give his life a ransom for many, to be the saviour and lord of an innumerable international company. Men and women who've turned from sin and accepted the freedom that this king brings. Well, let me ask a final question, and that is, how do we respond? It's very interesting, if you look again at the passage, Matthew tells us how people responded in verse 10. Um, Actually, Dick France, who used to teach here uh, in Oxford, um, has pointed out that in chapter 2 of Matthew, when the Magi uh, came looking for the king of the Jews, uh, Matthew records, all Jerusalem was troubled. But now, when the king does arrive, verse 10, the whole city was stirred. Uh, the, The word literally means shaken. It's the word from which we get our word seismic. So the impact of Jesus' arrival was profound, almost earth-shaking. And the following few days of the story remind us of the profound change of mood in that excited crowd. Uh, The people who had welcomed this king, who had waved their palm branches, who'd thrown down their cloaks, who'd shouted their praise, now became a hostile mob. Uh, Simon quoted this. It was no longer Hosanna, it was crucify. As we've seen, Jesus knew what was coming. In Luke's account of this event, he describes Jesus coming up onto that ridge. Do you remember a moment ago, I I described this climb up to Jerusalem, up to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus reached that ridge, looked across the Kidron Valley to Jerusalem. And do you remember what Luke said happened? Jesus burst into tears. As he looked there, this is Luke 19, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, Jesus said, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So this man of sorrows was grieved by the fact that on that day when he arrived, 
So many of his people would close their eyes, would close their hearts and their minds to the truth of Jesus' identity and mission. On the Mount of Olives that day, the people wanted a king on their own terms. And that's rather the case for some people today as well. They want a king to fulfill their aspirations and hopes. But this Jesus, this king, came to Calvary. He came to take away our sins. He came to introduce this new kingdom of peace and righteousness, to restore us to what we should be. And this is the extraordinary paradox of this story and indeed of the whole gospel, I think. He is the king who comes to rule the hearts and lives of people like us. The king who chose a donkey. The king who chose to wash people's feet. The king who chose to be scourged. The king who chose the agonies of the cross. The king who chose to bear God's wrath. And now this king comes to rule the nation's in righteousness and peace. So I think these questions of the story, this Palm Sunday account, are very direct. Who is this? What is his mission? How do we respond? And our answer to those questions will not only radically impact every aspect of our lives now, but also our destiny in eternity. Luke goes on to record Jesus' prediction that the city over which he would weep would one day be destroyed. Uh, Those words are in the account in Luke 19. It happened in uh, AD 70, as you know. They had refused to welcome this king. They rejected, they crucified the true king. So actually this king brings deliverance or he brings judgment. Uh, Jesus' words are very poignant at the end of the Luke narrative. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And uh, as I was preparing, I was thinking, actually, it's relatively easy in a Christian or post-Christian country like Britain, and actually in churches all around the world, for people to sing their hosannas along with the crowd. But what really matters is that we understand who this king really is, and that we truly welcome him into our lives. We wholeheartedly bow the knee to this king. And in words which underline the gentleness, the meekness of this King, this Lord and Saviour this morning, let's hear Jesus as he appeals to us again in the words which Matthew wrote a few chapters earlier. They'll come up on screen. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest. You will find peace for your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that though being of the very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with you something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself He rode that donkey. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we remember that the words of Paul continue, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. 
And so we pray that by your grace, by your strengthening power, we today will hear his call to break our allegiance to the kingdoms of this world and to be wholeheartedly committed to you, our only Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.